Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino, and this week we're talking about how political campaigns are regulated and how those regulations might implicate your First Amendment rights. But before we get there, I have a quick announcement for you all. I mentioned on a previous podcast that FIRE is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. Now, I have some details for you. The gala for our anniversary will occur on Thursday, October 24th, 2019, in New York City at the Mandarin Oriental Hotel, which is located in the heart of New York City, right on Columbus Circle next to Central Park. Salman Rushdie will deliver the keynote address. I'm sure he's familiar to most of our listeners. He's a award-winning novelist who is most notable in free speech circles for his 1988 novel, The Satanic Verses. The book prompted Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini to call for the death of Rushdie, also for the death of his editors and publishers, because Satanic Verses Uh, used a depiction of Muhammad and Islam, of course, as a literary device. Protests ensued, people were killed, stores were firebombed, the book was banned in many places, and Rushdie went into hiding, all because he sought to exercise his right to tell a fictional story. As for other speakers, we have Fire Advisory Council member and comedian Kareth Foster, who is MC in the evening, and the other speakers will actually be announced in the coming months, so stay tuned for that. Tickets will be available at thefire.org slash anniversary soon. They're not quite yet available, but if you're interested in tickets or in sponsoring the event or have any other questions, you can email events at thefire.org. Again, that is events at thefire.org. You won't want to miss this celebration. Also, Another thing to note, if you haven't noticed yet, FIRE has a new website, a new look for our 20th anniversary, so to speak. Check it out. We are still working out some of the bugs, and most of them should be fixed at this point. But if you see anything that looks wrong, please let us know via webmaster at thefire.org. Again, that's webmaster at thefire.org, and of course, the website can be visited at thefire.org. Now, about today's show... Our guest today is Bradley A. Smith. Brad is an outspoken critic of many campaign finance regulations, and his criticisms often stem from First Amendment concerns. It also comes from his firsthand experience working on these various regulations. Uh, That's because from 2000 until 2005, he was a commissioner on the Federal Election Commission, which is tasked with enforcing America's campaign finance laws in federal elections. Notably, Brad served as chairman of the commission in 2004 and vice chairman in 2003. And in 2005, Brad founded the Center for Competitive Politics, now known as the Institute for Free Speech, which fights against many campaign finance regulations, and for less regulated political speech and activity. Today, you can find Brad at Capital University Law School in Columbus, Ohio, where he is a professor. And you can also find him on Capitol Hill, where he's often called to testify on campaign finance-related matters. During this conversation, I asked Brad how political campaign activity is regulated in America and how this regulation might generate First Amendment concerns. We also explore some of today's hot-button campaign finance controversies involving, yes, the President of the United States. Now, on to the show. 
Bradley Smith, thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, it's my pleasure. You have to tell me, what compelled you to get interested in campaign finance issues? At least in the First Amendment world, this is thought as, of as a confusing, somewhat arcane area of First Amendment law. Well, it is somewhat confusing. You know, one of my favorites is Antonin Scalia, who, you know, whether you love him or not, was a pretty good legal mind, pretty good judge, you know, actually said from the bench in Supreme Court oral argument one time, he said, this campaign finance law is so confusing, I can't figure it out. Um, I got into it a little bit by happenstance when I began teaching. Uh, I was asked to uh, teach a seminar and in addition to regular courses. And I said, what do you want the seminar in? And they said, it can be whatever you want. And at that time, I had published one academic article, which was on the rights of minor political parties. So I said, why don't I teach election law, which was then almost entirely unheard of in law school curriculums. And that's how I actually got into it. Had they told me instead, we want you to teach immigration or labor or something like that, my career would have been very different. The somewhat ironic thing is that uh, years later, when I was nominated for the position at the Federal Election Commission, you have to go back through all your background stuff. And I discovered something I'd totally forgotten, which was when I was an undergrad, uh, I'd written my senior uh, comps thesis on campaign finance, and I couldn't hadn't even remembered that. And, and they got that when they during the confirmation process. Well, yeah, yeah, that popped up. What what is the nexus between campaign finance law and the First Amendment? Some people listening to this podcast might think campaign finance this is how you raise money for your campaign. Where is the speech nexus? Sure. I mean, it's very common for the, the man on the street, so to speak, to just say, you know, this is not speech. It's money. It's raising and spending money. Money isn't speech. And and that's a powerful initial argument that we often have to overcome. On the other hand, it's pretty easy to overcome. As soon as you point out to anybody, well, look, it, it, it costs money to speak. You can't do this podcast without spending money. You know, you spend it on the hardware, the microphones and the recording devices and so on. You've got your time, unless you're going to do this all for free. We've got the office we're in. You know, what's the New York Times? spend each year to produce a newspaper. They spend millions. Now, they may make money on it, but they're, but they're also spending millions of dollars. Uh, and people quickly realize that. You can draw analogies. For example, suppose you said, look, you're perfectly free to practice your religion. You just can't spend any money to build churches or buy hymnals or pay a pastor. I think everybody would immediately recognize that that's a First Amendment problem. You know, if you said, regardless of how extensive you think the Second Amendment should be read, I think you can see that you couldn't just go in and say, if there is a right to own weapons to own handguns, you couldn't just go in and say, well, it shall be illegal to spend any money on the manufacture, importation, or purchase of handguns in the United States, that that would you know, destroy the, the underlying right. So that's the nexus. So I'm Nico Perino, and you're Brad Smith, and you're running for political office, and I like your campaign, and I give you $100. How you spend that $100 implicates the First Amendment in what way? You bet. Because if I can't spend money, I'm not going to reach very many people. Now, folks say- So you it's the always, messaging nexus. Right. You could say, they could say, you know, you can go out and speak on the soapbox on the corner, but you're not going to reach very many people that way. Remember, the average congressional district now has more than a half million, you know, people in it. Uh, it costs money to communicate with a mass audience. And and that's what people, I think, uh, very quickly realize when you sort of point it out to them that you can't ignore the First Amendment implications. So when you're talking about the amount of money that you donate to a candidacy, that's in essence, the amount that a candidate might be able to meet, reach its audience. So if you, if you place a $1,000 cap on how much you get to a candidate, that sort of caps how they can 
get their message out to the world. Right. That, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, if I can't spend, you know, it costs money to buy an, a television ad, but it also costs money for, again, the campaign infrastructure to have speech writers, to, to help with the messaging, to, you know, have telephones so we can communicate. But all of that is necessary to support the messaging. Just as, again, if we look at a TV network or a movie or a book publisher, you know, those things are all speech activities, but they have to have that infrastructure too. They have to have offices where they can go and, and, you know, cameras to film with and so on. But money can corrupt, right? So if I give you a ton of money, there's no caps on how much I can donate to you. The implication could be that I am buying influence with you, right? Why is that wrong in your mind or is it right? Well, it's certainly, you know, a concern that, that people have, and I, I don't think it's a frivolous concern. Uh, I think in the end, there, there's a couple responses to that. And one, let's start with the, the very technical response, response of where the constitutional law is. Under constitutional laws interpreted by the Supreme Court, a legislature can limit the size of contributions directly to a candidate. Okay, so it can place limits there. What it cannot do is limit what you can just go spend on your own. So if, let, let's say I, I'm either a wealthy individual or more likely, like most Americans, I'm a member of some group. I'm a member of Handgun Control, Inc., or I'm a member of the National Rifle Association. I'm a member of Planned Parenthood or I'm a member of Right to Life, you know, whatever it is, right? When my group speaks, and we just speak publicly. We're not corrupting a candidate. He's not getting money from us. He may like what we're saying, but but that's part of what speech is about, is, is liking or not liking. So the, there are or have been laws in the United States that limit what you as an individual or you as a participant of a group, Planned Parenthood, the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education or other sort of um, you know, for advocacy efforts can spend in support of a candidate or in support of a political there, there, message? There have been efforts to limit how much groups like that can spend both in support of a candidate and in support of a political message, uh, you know, like on talking about issues or, or events. Uh, but the Supreme Court said that's unconstitutional. That's that's directly aimed at sort of suppressing the amount of speech that those organizations can can do. On the other hand, it has allowed limits, again, on contributions directly to candidates on the theory that there, and that has been widely criticized by some people on the speech side, but but the argument there is, look, there's at least a, a, a possibility that you have a sort of a quid pro quo give and take, that, that in that situation, the candidate can say, look, if you give money to my campaign, I will take this or that position, or I will, you know, uh, try to achieve this legislative objective for you. But that opportunity for quid pro quo bargaining isn't there when an organization is just speaking on its own and not talking, you know, with the candidate. And the Supreme Court said, I think, quite correctly, that gratitude is not a reason to censor speech, right? I mean, we can't say, let's suppose that Barack Obama's endorsement is worth you know, $100,000 to a candidate for Congress in terms of the publicity it gets him, the number of people it persuades, and so on. You can't say, well, you know, uh, Mr. President, uh, you know, he'll be very grateful to you if you endorse him. So we're not going to let you do that. You know, the Supreme Court says, no, no, you can't. Gratitude's not enough. There has to be that corruption. So, you, so you're drawing a line. Gratitude is fine. But if they give you something as a result of that gratitude, it's not OK. Well, it, 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 I would say a little more precisely, if they give you something to, to either take or not to take 
a specific action or something to enrich you personally is normally the what we you know would think of as bribery or quasi bribery. That's when you have a problem. On the other hand, you know, let, let's suppose a group uh, simply says, uh, "Look, uh, you know, Congressman Jones, we really like him. He's thinking about taking a stand on this issue. It's not not you know bold stand, right? Politicians hate the word bold. Okay, yeah. um, they say we need to pave the way for him. We need to run ads in that district telling people this would be the best thing since sliced bread if this legislation passes." No, they're not saying anything about the election, the re-election, maybe not even mentioning the candidate's name, but it may be something the candidate is very grateful for. And it may be what enables him to feel that he can publicly take that position and push for that legislation. But there's nothing corrupting about that. There's nothing wrong with that. That's exactly what democracy is about, the interplay of voices and ideas and attitudes. So lately, there has been concern among some um, outdoors brands, Columbia, Patagonia, about the Trump administration's use of public lands because a lot of their customers go to the national parks, yada, yada, yada. And they've been taking out advertisements, kind of criticizing some of these efforts. Before uh, the courts paved the way for spending on political messages, would these sorts of ads been pro- be prohibited? Would they have been considered political advocacy and therefore bound by certain restraints on what you can and can't spend? Well, let's, you know, to review the history a little bit, you know, people begin to think that something's normal when it's really not. In American history, generally, we have historically not placed any limits on what people can say about political issues, really none at all. There were, there were no campaign finance regulations like this at all, really, until the very late 19th century. But as a practical matter, in terms of actual sort of enforcement and bite to these laws, there was nothing until the 1970s. I mean, this is, a, this is an invention of the last half century and barely that. Um, and so historically, you know, these groups would be exactly free to do any of these things. Now, some of the earliest laws did limit, for example, how much corporations could spend uh, or could, you know, contribute to a candidate's campaign. Uh, and the response of corporations was to then just spend money on campaigns, you know, independently again. Congress did attempt to ban that, and it wasn't challenged for about 30 years, but it wasn't challenged because it didn't really matter very much. That is to say, there was no real enforcement mechanism, and while a corporation maybe couldn't say, you know, vote against Donald Trump, they were perfectly free to go out and say, Donald Trump's environmental policies are terrible, they're going to destroy the national parks, you know, you, our loyal customers, need to, you know, fight him on this issue, right? And that might make people vote against Trump. It was only in the 1970s that Congress and states began to pass laws saying anything that might influence any election was, was, could be limited or prohibited. And that the Supreme Court has struck down because the Supreme Court realizes everything can influence an election. You know, you and I talking here this morning and people listening to us might influence some election. Somebody might say, you know, I never thought about it that way. Now I'm going to support people who oppose campaign finance regulation or something. You know, everything we do can can influence an election. And the Supreme Court said we can't let the First Amendment be swallowed up in this concern that somebody might influence an election. That's why we participate in politics. That's why we participate in public life is to try to influence the debate. So in that respect, you know, you kind of asked, would, would, would these ads have been banned in the past? There was never really a time when they were banned in the past. The Congress kind of passed a law that briefly might have been thought of as banning those ads, but very quickly it was struck down by the Supreme Court as unconstitutional. So we have two cases that loom large in people's minds when they think about campaign finance. Well, I guess we have we have three. We have that Buckley v. Vallejo situation, which I guess comes in in the night. That's the 1970s uh, Supreme Court case that you're referencing. You know, the laws that came about in the wake of Watergate when I believe Richard Nixon was using campaign funds to buy people off. Right. right? And then so you get legislation, then you get 
Buckley v. Vallejo, which kind of spells out what you can and can't do. And then you get Speech Now, which I believe the uh, Institute for Free Speech, which you're with, when Center for Competitive Politics back then, and the Institute for Justice litigated, and Citizens United. What did those two cases do? Yeah, um, let, let me go back to, to just Buckley a, a little bit because very interesting. You know, the, the, again, these laws first come in in the 1970s, and it's the Federal Election Campaign Act amendments of 1974, and those laws limit it to one thousand dollars what any group could spend relative to a candidate in some parts of the law, and in other parts of the law said for the purpose of influencing the election. Again, think about that. That would mean that the Sierra Club couldn't spend more than $1,000 to advocate for anything that might influence an election, which so might be anything So corporations and do. individuals? It, well, it applied to nonprofit corporations like the Sierra Club, and yes, it applied to individuals as well. Uh, you know, $1,000 is nothing to try to reach uh, even a local audience, let alone a national audience, and persuade them on anything relative to a candidate. So it shows how extreme these laws could be where the court not, in fact, saying, no, you you know, you just can't do that. You can't tell people they can't try to communicate to their fellow citizens about public issues. So that's really Buckley v. Vallejo. Buckley's the case that says, yeah, you can limit these contributions directly to candidates because there's at least, you know, some possibility for the greatest corruption there, kind of direct giving of money to the candidate's campaign. And remember, this law was passed. Before this law was passed, you could walk into a congressman's office with a paper bag full of cash, put it on his desk and say, now, I really hope you're going to vote for that tariff bill. And he might say, well, I'm thinking about it. You'd say, well, well, we really hope you do. It would be very, very important to us. And he says, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to vote for it. And you'd say, well, because, you know, this would mean an awful lot to our organization. I'm sure he's pretty, he says, I am going to vote for that tariff bill. And you say, good, because I've left a campaign contribution on your desk. But by the way, I just just leave that no one know about it, right? You could do that prior to the, so, so I'm not saying all regulation in this field is, is totally, you know, uh, uh, wrong here. But once that kind of thing is gone, once you have to, the candidate has to account for his, you know, expenditures and his income and so on. The court says, look, you know, you can limit contributions, but it has to be a reasonable limit. And it, and it does leave some possibility of that sense of quid pro quo bargaining. So that's Buckley v. Vallejo. But Buckley also strikes down the limits on expenditures. Again, that idea that anything relative to a candidate or for the purpose of influencing an election can be limited. The court just says, no, you, you can't do that. People get to talk. Uh, the other two cases are kind of twinned, uh, speechnow.org and Citizens United. Citizens United holds simply that uh, you can't prohibit corporations or unions from engaging in that same type of independent expenditure. So prior to that, an individual could spend money, but a corporation could not spend money, at least not to explicitly advocate the election or defeat of a candidate. They could spend money now on those ads influencing or relative to a candidate, but they couldn't say, vote for this guy, vote against that guy. When and you're this, talking about independent expenditures, you mean they're not coordinated with a candidate. Right. It means they're, they're done, means they're done separately from, from the candidate. The right. So so that's the, that was the the deal there. And note that that ban, you know, in, uh, Citizens United often talks about allowing corporations to spend money. But remember, we're not just talking corporations like Exxon or, or Apple or something. You know, we're talking corporations like the Sierra Club or FIRE or the Institute for Free Speech, you know, nonprofit organizations that people join precisely to engage in public discussion and public debates. And they're all nonprofit corporations. They were all prohibited as well from saying specifically vote for or vote against that candidate. And so that that was struck down in Citizens United. Uh, actually, it's a very ordinary First Amendment decision, if you think about it. And I, if you'd like, I can go into that in greater detail. But to cut over speech now, what speech now adds to Citizens United is to say it's also okay for people to to pool their resources. The Federal Election Commission's reaction to uh, speech now was to, or to Citizens United was to say, well, okay, if Charles Koch wants to spend $10 million, that's fine. 
And if his brother David Koch wants to spend $10 million, that's fine. But as soon as the two of them get together, now they're not really spending money. They're contributing it to a common fund. Remember, Buckley said you could limit contributions. So the Supreme Court says, so now it's a contribution, so it can be limited. Well, that's just semantic games playing, right? There, there's still no corruption there. There's no giving the money to a candidate. So that's really all speech now does is it says people can pool their money in order to uh, to make these independent expenditures as well as make them on their own. And at, so speech now came after Citizens United. And if I recall correctly, during oral argument, the justices or the judges on on the uh, D.C. Circuit said, what can you tell us today that the Supreme Court hasn't ar- already told us? Right. It was, you know, it was kind of a funny case because Speech Now was actually filed before Citizens United. And Citizens United kind of jumped it in the in the uh, uh, framework. I will tell you, you know, I think our thinking was after we won Speech Now, and we always felt confident we would win Speech Now, that then Speech Now was an inc- unincorporated group, a bunch of friends that were just unincorporated. Um we, we always thought that then probably the next step would be for them to incorporate themselves and then say, okay, now why can't they do it just because they're an incorporated nonprofit organization? But Citizens United jumped it in the queue and that was great. So you have a lot less regulation when groups of citizens just get together and spend money on political issues or advocating for, advocating for or against a candidate without coordination with the candidate. You have more regulation when you're actually talking about giving money to a campaign Uh, And there's been some recent Supreme Court cases that um, raised the limit, if I'm not mistaken, in how much you can give to a candidate, correct? Or they struck down- Well, they they haven't raised how much you can give to a candidate. There is one decision- You would have to do that by law. There's one decision from- McCutcheon. Yeah, there's one decision from 2006 uh, uh, called Randall v. Sorrell, which says that if you make the limits too low, it's unconstitutional. For example, if I said, okay- uh, you, you can't, you, we have to let you do independent expenditures, but you can only give $1 to a candidate. You know, it would be very hard for a candidate to get the resources together to actually get a message Unless they're out Donald again. Trump and independent. Unless they can spend their own money, right. And so the Supreme Court has said, again, you can't, again, kind of play games. You have to have a limit that's high enough that candidates can actually raise money to communicate with folks. And then there is the other case that you just mentioned, McCutcheon versus FEC. McCutcheon doesn't alter how much a person can give to a candidate. It merely says that you can't, limit the number of candidates he can give to. Prior to McCutcheon, you know, this guy, Sean McCutcheon, exactly wanted to do this. He wanted to give $1,776, kind of a symbolic number, to a whole bunch of candidates. Giving $1,776 was legal. I think the limit at the time was $2,000 was the max you could give. So it was a legal contribution to each candidate. But the law said, oh, once you've given to like 10 candidates, you can't give to any more. And again, the argument in the court was, well, what's the point of that, right? I mean, why are the first 10 candidates, you know, not corrupted by getting this money, but the 11th and 12th candidates are? Could you make the argument that the the party, say the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, if you're giving that much money to that many candidates, is corrupted by the level of your influence on that party? Well, By again, the nature of how much money you donate, of course. Uh, again, you get back in, and I, I think the basic answer is no, because remember, this is giving money to each individual candidate. There are also limits on how much you can give to, quote, the party, right? And and so unless you want to try to lump, you know, every Democrat together, every Republican together, say they're all one big blob and they're all corrupted in some way, I just don't think you can can get there, um, you know, by doing that. In other words, we're back again to this idea that influence is not corruption. You know, sometimes people say everybody should have equal political influence. If we all had equal political influence, that would mean none of us had any political influence. And if it was illegal to get political influence, then why would anybody participate in politics? And if nobody participated in politics, then 
I don't know, maybe that's good. Some people, they want the anarchy and they, they think that'd be great, but other people think that there should at least be a limited government and some people think there should be a really big government and and that requires folks trying to influence other folks. It, it can't be illegal to try to get influence. So the justification for campaign finance regulation is that corruption, the quid pro quo corruption, but there's also this, this other justification that courts have uh, laid down, which is the appearance of corruption. And the idea is that if one person or one group is giving too much money to a candidate, it might not actually corrupt the candidate, but it would corrupt the public at large's perception of democracy, thinking that you know a few rich people can influence our election, and as a result, uh, you know that that is a justification for the government to intervene and yeah, that, that's keep that's, up public morale. I that's say. how the argument is sometimes put. That's not actually what the Supreme Court means when they talk about the appearance of corruption. What they mean about the appearance of corruption is exactly what I sort of described earlier, where people could walk into a candidate's office with a bag full of money, and and you know it was very hard to prove. Well, was that a campaign contribution intended to help them speak out to the public? To the public, or is that just a bribe? Um, and what the court meant by the appearance of corruption was exactly the appearance that there might be this kind of quid pro quo exchange. We don't know what's going on in the back room, right? So we're going to say if you contribute directly to the candidate's campaign, we're going to allow a prophylactic measure that limits how much that is so that that way people won't have to be concerned about what kind of bargains did you strike outside of the, the public eye, right? So that's what they meant by the appearance of corruption. They meant the appearance of that actual quid pro quo exchange, not just anything that people don't like about elections. And if you, you know, if you go out and you ask again, the man on the street, you know, do you think politics is corrupt? Oh yeah, politics is corrupt. Do you think, you know, this guy's, yeah, he's corrupt. They're, you know, they're, they're all corrupt. Everything's corrupt. The ads are corrupt. They're too negative. The, you know, the bills are, you know, and, but, but that's not what you can do with campaign finance. It's not sort of a scattershot all purpose remedy for anything that's bothering people about elections at a particular moment. So this might appear confusing to a lot of people. I was reading in your biography that during your time on the Federal Elections Commission, you kept a file of letters from ordinary citizens uh, who were struggling, in in the bio's words, um, through the web of oppressive campaign finance laws. And you had one letter in particular that said, I will never be involved with a political campaign again. Tell me what it's like to be an individual who gets involved in a political campaign, who doesn't have a machine behind them. What do I, Nico Perino, need to keep in mind so that I don't run afoul of the law? Sure. One of the things people don't understand, you know, they tend to think of campaign finance reform as something that gets the fat cats, you know, the rich people. But like regulation in a lot of areas of life, you know, the big spenders, the big money folks, they can hire the lawyers and the consultants and the accountants and, and, and work around a lot of these things and do that. And it's the real grassroots efforts that often have the toughest time complying. For the life of me, I do not understand why there is this insistence on having very low thresholds at which these laws kick in. So let me start giving some examples yeah. of what, what it's like. In some states, spending as little as a dollar Two or more people spending as little as $1 makes them a political committee that has to then start filing all kinds of reports with the state government, right? At the federal level, it's uh, $1,000, which again is not very much money for a handful of people to to spend. And is this just in uh, candidate campaigns or could it also be the the – thing they're trying to pass to get sure. the school funded. For sure. Fe- federally, it's candidate campaigns, of course, because we don't have federal initiative and referendum. But in many states, it's it's spending that money on on initiatives or referenda. If they have those, that will also trigger that status. The, and this requires ongoing reporting. 
It requires a certain uh, sort of organizational form and structure, usually appointment of a treasurer and things like that. And a lot of this is very, very difficult, especially for the most long shot operations to do. You know, filling out these forms, so it's just filling out forms. It is hard. They are complex. They're difficult. Uh, Jeffrey Milo, who's a professor at the Truman School of Government at the University of Missouri, did an experiment some years ago where they actually paid people to try to fill out these forms correctly. So the people had an incentive to do it right because they were getting paid if they did it correctly. And, and they had a whole bunch of college graduate students, so pretty smart people, right? None of them could do it. Not one of them got all the forms filled out correctly. And you can be you know, liable for this, this kind of thing. So what I used to see at, at the FEC uh, a lot of the times was these small campaigns, the true grassroots efforts, the real ones that are run by volunteers. And these people, the reason they'd be writing to us directly was typically because they couldn't afford a lawyer to defend them in the charges that were being brought against them. And, and you'd get these letters addressed to the commission and the commissioners would get copies, you know, and they would say, you know, uh, I, I remember one guy saying, you know, it's, it's uh, Easter Sunday and I'm taking my Sunday afternoon to try to write to you guys. You know, my business is being destroyed. You know, I remember this one letter, it may have been the letter you, you quoted, you know, uh, there's a person was saying, you know, I was a school teacher. I'm a school teacher. I've always taught my kids that this is the best country ever, but you know, and they need to participate in democracy. But what I've learned from this is you don't want people participating in democracy. You know, again, I'll never be involved in politics again. We had people that would uh, write in and note, you know, I was a, a CPA. I assumed I could be a treasurer for a committee. You know, I'm, I, I'm a professional accountant. That's what I do. And saying, I remember one accountant writing, nothing has ever caused me so much stress in my entire lifetime. I remember we had a, a physician who'd run for office and uh, he, and they don't really care who pays the fines actually. So he had some money because he was a prosperous physician and he paid a bunch of fines for his staffers because he wouldn't let his staffers who had just made errors, you know, be on the hook for these kinds of fines. But, you know, it was just destructive. I mean, as he, he pointed out, you know, people around town look at him, you know, he's been reported in the paper as violating campaign finance laws. And, and these were just, you know, sort of technical little things that weren't corrupting anybody were intended to corrupt anybody. It's very scary to be caught in the crosshairs of, of you know, the U.S. government with all its resources. And, and it's very, you know, people who feel like they're good people just trying to participate in democracy get a letter from the Federal Election Commission saying, we have reason to believe that you may have violated federal campaign finance law. And then that's reported in the local newspaper and nowadays in blogs and goes out on Twitter and everything. That's pretty crushing to a lot of people. Just so we understand what these laws mean, and I'm talking on the state level because it's kind of a patchwork mm -hmm. across the country. Some states don't have any campaign finance laws. I, I recall Oregon or has very few, for example. Yeah, every state has some because every state requires at least disclosure of, of contributions into the campaign and uh -huh. all but one require disclosure of expenditures by the campaign. But there are states like Oregon and Virginia and Utah that have no limits on how much you can give to a candidate uh, at all or how much, of course, a candidate can spend, which the Supreme Court have held that you can't limit how much a candidate can spend. But, but you know, and what's interesting is that those states that are like that are often among the best governed states in the country. Uh, you know, the Pew Charitable Trust, which gives a lot of money to groups promoting campaign finance reform, also does periodic surveys of what are the best governed states. And oddly enough, under their own surveys, the best governed states are routinely states that have no limits on campaign contributions. You know, even Citizens United, which allowed corporate contributions, right, or corporate expenditures, I should say, corporations, a corporation could spend money. A corporation could say, if Donald Trump's elected, he's going to start a trade war and that's going to devastate this country and you people out in this little town 
down. We employ 300 people directly plus all the other people we employ. And if you vote for this guy, uh, you know, we're probably going to go out of business. It's going to devastate this town, right? That's a message those people ought to hear, by the way. And they should hear that from the corporation, okay? Um, but what's kind of interesting is that even before Citizens United, a majority of U.S. states allowed corporations to make expenditures in state races for governor Secretary of State, state legislature, and so on. And nobody was all freaked out about it. Nobody, you know, some people thought we should regulate that. Some people thought we shouldn't. But there wasn't this big freak out about it. So Citizens United comes along. It's really a pretty ordinary decision. And all of a sudden, there's this massive sort of freak out about, you know, oh, corporations are going to take over America. I remember I testified in front of uh, Senator Leahy's committee, Patrick Leahy of Vermont. And uh, he was critical. He, was, he went off in this long speech about how it was and how these corporations in a little state like Vermont, it wouldn't take much for corporations to just dominate state politics. And I remember I responded by saying, you know, Senator, Vermont's one of the oldest states in the nation. I think it's number 14. It's been around for, you know, well over 200 years. And Vermont has never prohibited corporate expenditures in elections. And yet you're sitting here saying now because suddenly the Supreme Court says you must keep doing what you've always done. You're suddenly saying, oh, my God, Vermont politics are going to be ruined. <laughs> you know, it's just absurd. The and what kind did of you reaction. say to that? Uh, he yelled at me that I shouldn't I shouldn't accuse the citizens of Vermont of overreacting and uh, was very angry with me. So to the extent <laughs> that donations and expenditures implicate First Amendment concerns and some states don't have limits on, on uh, what can be donated, donated to a state candidate or what can be spent by a state candidate. When we're thinking about First Amendment law, often strict scrutiny is applied. You know, the law has to have a very close nexus with a concern the government has for regulating. And and if you're telling me that the states that don't have these limits on donations, don't have these limits on expenditures, are no more corrupt than states that do, shouldn't the First Amendment analysis strike those laws down in the states that do have them? Because they, they, they can't find any fact-based justification to support the corruption argument. I, I would like to see the courts be more skeptical of a lot of the arguments that states make. but uh, Because that's what we see in other First Amendment contexts. Right. For example, the Charlottesville protests that happened in 2017. The city tried to move the protest away from the Robert E. Lee statue, which was the nexus of the protest. And the courts did a fact-based, intensive analysis to see whether the moving of that protest was a result of security concerns or just to make the li lives easier for the municipality and a distaste of the message. And the court found through that fact-based analysis that there weren't sufficient security concerns. And now, you know, post hoc, we can, of course, um, consider whether that was true or not. But they said, no, the, the protest needs to happen here. You'd think that same analysis would be applied in these cases as well. But <laughs> is this issue just so polarizing and difficult that the court doesn't apply those same sort of fact-based analyses to... Yeah, you know, I chuckle because I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, you'd think that, wouldn't you? <laughs> but in fact, you know, we, we find it very frustrating, I'll be honest, with the courts uh, because they do seem to want to say we're not going to probe into whether, you know, the Supreme Court has said you can limit contributions and so we're not going to probe into that. Um, now, you know, it will be interesting if, if a case is ever again, you know, nobody's really pushed a case up to the Supreme Court, at least they haven't taken one, that makes a broad challenge on contribution limits. You've had, again, some nibbling away like the McCutcheon case saying you can't have this aggregate limit on how much you can give to all candidates. We've had the, the case I mentioned, Randall v. Sorrell, which took some Vermont limits that were very, very low and said you can't have limits that are that low. But, but nobody's ever tried to go back to the court and just said, look, 
these contribution limits really, you know, don't make uh, much sense. They don't pass the strict scrutiny test, as the courts uh, call it. Where we find the issue is, is even worse is on the question of disclosure of spending on political matters um, and public affairs, I really should say. Because here, you know, most people feel like, well, you know, we ought to know who's trying to influence politics. So if I give $1,000 to a candidate, states have disclosure laws that require right. my contribution to be known to anyone who wants to know. Right. It. But here's the thing that we have is, is for example, Every state now requires that, right? And the Supreme Court said, yeah, you can require that. Uh, again, that there's, uh, you know, it helps the public to see if maybe there are quid pro exchanges, quid pro quo exchanges. They can at least kind of see who's given money and kind of look into the guy's voting record. It's a voter, it's a cue to voters. They, they can look and say, okay, you know, I see this person's gotten money from this group or that person, and that tells me something about them. It adds information. It which adds in information. The, in First Amendment considerations, you might say, uh, adds to the debate and discussion. Right. And and it's worth noting that at this point in time, I mean, there's no, to my knowledge, no serious effort to roll back any of these laws. But I bring this up because now let's think about this a different way. Suppose uh, somebody came to you and said, you know, the government's very concerned about, you know, Russian and foreign influence in American elections. So from now on, uh, we, we're going to compile a government database of all of your political affiliations and any political speech you do. And and you need to report to us if you engage in any political speech. You need to talk to us about who you talk to politics with and what organizations you join. And again, we're going to keep that all in a database. And oh, by the way, we're going to make that database available to people who might want to harm you because of your political beliefs. We're going to make it available to, you know, future employers or creditors where some rogue credit officer at the bank may say, I'm not going to give prove this guy's loan, you know, um, we might college admissions officers and so on, and we're going to make that available to them. What do you think of that law? When I raise that to most people, they, they immediately go, whoa, that sounds like a really bad idea. It's exactly what I want government well, to do. Well, I think people would think differently based on whether the donation is coming from a corporation or individuals. I think people have just kind of a skepticism when they're talking about corporate donations. Mm-hmm. Individual, I, I recall, what was this? But, 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 but I'm going to be talking about individuals, Let me, because let me, I'm talking about individuals here. Individuals have to disclose all that, right? And and the and so these people say that's a really bad idea. But then you point out we actually have that law, and it's called the Federal Election Campaign Act, and different state laws that require that. At least it's limited there traditionally to just you know money given directly to the candidate. Or if you run ads that explicitly say vote for a candidate or oppose a candidate and you give a group money to do that. But the Supreme Court has always said you can't just blanket wise require people to to tell the government and everybody else who wants to know about their various political affiliations. Now, that's been the long-standing law here, but of late and then Alabama back during the civil rights era tried to compel disclosure of people who were members or contributed to the NAACP right. and they said no you can't do that. Right, it's a great example because you know if had the NAACP been forced to disclose its membership list and its donor list it would have destroyed the NAACP in the 1950s Alabama. You can destroy an organization by that. And and it's true that you know we're not living in 1950s Alabama, but is it really so far-fetched that you know we're going to have bombs sent to uh, uh, the donors who support Planned Parenthood or Right to Life on, you know, hot button issue like that. We've got, you know, we live in a society where not long ago, man drove halfway across the country to try to shoot a bunch of Republican congressmen and where another guy sent bombs to a bunch of Democratic, you know, congressmen and representatives. I mean, there are some crazy people out there. We live in this w- world of Twitter mobs and people trying to destroy businesses. Well, I recall what there was a situation a couple of years ago when there was Proposition 8, I believe, in mm-hmm. California and 
uh, the CEO or the president of Mozilla, which is a tech company, I think had given in support of Proposition 8, which would have banned same-sex marriage, if I'm recalling it correctly. And that contribution, I believe, was disclosed as a result of state law, and correct me if I'm wrong, and the mob came after him, and I think he resigned his position. Yeah, or he, something he was happened. forced to resign. As, yeah, and I think he was. I think he'd founded the company, or at least been instrumental in his findings. Yeah. but you know, it, and it wasn't just though somebody like Brendan Ike was his name, who was you know pretty well to do guy who'd founded this company. You know, was president of it. It, it, it included, for example, there was one woman who who uh, had given a hundred dollars, I think it was, to the campaign, and her family had a family owned restaurant in L.A. and the restaurant was picketed and boycotted and harassed until she finally had to leave town, not just for her herself, but to prevent her family restaurant from going going bankrupt. In the First Amendment context, I mean, we have a long tradition in America of anonymous speech. The Federalist Papers, the Anti-Federalist Papers, they were written anonymously. I believe even the Declaration of Independence, of course, written by Thomas Jefferson. It wasn't revealed that he was the one who wrote it for many years. Sure. Thomas Paine's The Crisis, uh, John Marshall, the first, uh, you know, or the great, not one the first, but the great Supreme Court early ch- chief justice, used to write anonymous letters defending his own decisions. So, so you would think <laughs> if, the, if the courts have held that there at least is a serious speech concern that needs to be considered when we're talking about contributions and expenditures, you would think that they would take the anonymous speech argument seriously. But, but here's what happens in that. And what, you know, we start with this, with talking about the strict scrutiny. And what we find is that we go into court, these states have these sweeping laws that say any nonprofit organization that talks at all about public issues again, doesn't have to talk about candidates, they can just talk about public affairs, right, has to disclose all of its donors to the state. And we say, well, why do you want that? And the state says, well, law enforcement. And we say, well, what law enforcement do you mean? You know, because if you if you think of a group as acting fraudulently, then you then you do have the power to subpoena that information. You can get it in an individual case. It's just that the idea that you can just broadly collect it from everyone and put it in a database is kind of alarming. I mean, that's how you get the lowest learner situations uh, with the Internal Revenue Service a few years ago. It really damaged the the IRS's image and and probably harmed a number of people. Right? You 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 can harm people. Government can harm them, or private people can harm them. So anyway, we we present this. So what do you need this for to collect this information in bulk from everybody? And the state just says law enforcement. And again, when you try to press them for what does that mean, they don't know. In California, in the case, the state actually admitted the state auditors came and said, no, we've never used that information. And even if we did use it, we actually could get it from other sources. But nonetheless, the courts, the federal courts still kind of just say, well, you know, it seems plausible to us. Let it go. So there's none of this strict scrutiny, none of this Yeah, so it seems more like rational basis scrutiny in that it's, case. It's but, almost not even rational basis. It's, it's almost just any old reason you want to give, yeah. we'll buy it. So I guess this is a good point to talk about what people mean when they talk about dark money. We're talking in the state um, context, disclosure is required if you're contributing to a candidate. People say the way you get around that is to give to one of these super PACs or these nonprofits who spend money independently of a campaign to advocate for or against the election of that candidate or for or against a political message. And if you give money to one of these groups, the Sierra Club, for example, you're not required to disclose your donation or your contribution. Right. Well, this is this is exactly it. And this is where this disclosure bait's going. They, they want to know, you know, did you give money to a group? And then you have to disclose. And it doesn't matter why you gave the group money. So, so let's suppose, for example, 
uh, you give money to an organization that works on health issues because you think it's really important to work on health issues. And the organization then endorses, say, a single-payer plan for uh, national health care. Well, you don't think a single-payer plan is a good idea. That's not why you gave the group money, but they still want to identify you as having funded that group's advertisements for it. You know, all of us belong to organizations. We don't agree with everything the organization does. It's, it's kind of absurd to think we do. So this effort is to kind of suck in individuals in, into all this stuff that's often misleading and very unfair to the individuals that, uh, and often can lead them to threats, you know, or to harassment or even just, you know, some people don't like to give because they don't want people or don't like to be identified because they don't want people to know how much money they have or what they give you. That's why if you go to the opera or the symphony or the art museum in the programs, you'll see things that say anonymous, right? Some people just don't like to be identified with. It. So to address this dark money problem, as some people see it, would mean, for example, that the NAACP in 1950s Alabama would have had to disclose its donors. Right, they were they a dark money group. They were a dark uh, money group. And, and, and so dark money really is one of the things that people are, are most ill-informed about, and there's a number of ways in which they're ill-informed. We should start with the idea of, of first, whether there's a lot of dark money. Then we're going to come back to even talk about what dark money is, right? Let's talk about what it is first, okay? So what is dark money? Dark money is merely money that is spent on political campaigns, that is to promote or support a candidate without identifying who the spender got money from. So, and these a, spenders are not the campaigns themselves. These spenders are not the campaigns themselves. So, for example, um, you know, the Environmental Resources Defense Fund decides it's going to run some ads that uh, say you should not vote for Donald Trump because he's not good on the environment. Okay, they don't tell you who gave them money. And remember, a lot of people didn't give them money to run ads against Donald Trump. They gave them money for all kinds of other things, but they don't have to tell you. Now, they do have to report that they spent the money and they have to report that they spent it on ads critical of Donald Trump, right? So it's not truly dark. We know that the money was spent in this hypothetical by the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, we know how much they spent. We know what they spent it on. Uh, we just don't know who are all of their members or who might have, have given them uh, money. So the question is, you know, for, so first of all, I guess I'd say it's, it's not truly dark in that sense. We might call it opaque or something or you know but but it's not dark and by the way this is not uncommon we've always had this in american society. it's always been there and it goes even in ways that people don't think of i mean if i if i give a contribution to a candidate or if i make an expenditure on my own say i go out and buy five thousand dollars worth of radio ads i'm a pretty prosperous guy i could do that if i really wanted to right i would have to disclose that i spent that money on those radios i wouldn't have to say who paid me I wouldn't have to say, well, these are my clients because I'm a lawyer, right? And I, I do consulting work. I wouldn't say, these are my clients and these are who, who pays me my money. It's my money, right? And I'm telling you, I spent it, right? And that, that's a perfectly fair, logical thing to do. By the way, note that if somebody gives money to a group specifically to run the ad, then they do have to disclose it. So in other words, I can't go to the Environmental Defense Fund and say, here's $50,000. I want you to run some ads against Donald Trump in you know, Ohio. Right, and they do. Then they have to disclose it. I gave them fifty thousand bucks to run ads against Donald Trump. But if I just give them fifty thousand bucks for all their good work, that's that's they can spend it how they want. So if someone donates to a general operating fund, the donor doesn't need to be disclosed. Right. If they donate for a specific right. purpose, then right. they do have to be disclosed. Right. Now you may you may think that maybe we should have that disclosed. Okay, may, but. 
perfectly fine argument. We can have that argument. But but it's first to, worth noting that just that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about money that nobody knows who's spending it, where it's coming from, how much it is, right? You know, we know that money in this hypothetical was spent by the Environmental Defense Fund. Here's what they spent it on, you know, and, and so we know that. The second element that people don't realize is you hear all this stuff about, you know, we're awash in dark money. It's this huge percentage. It's not. Dark money amounts to about two and a half percent of total political spending in the United States. That is spending on ads about candidates and, and, you know, infrastructure for candidate campaigns and so on. It's a very small portion of the total. Sometimes you hear that exaggerated. People say, oh, it's, you know, they'll, they'll throw out a number like 20% or 30%. And you'll go, wow, that, well, that sounds like a lot. But what they're doing there is they're, they're, they're playing a little game with you. If you look at that closely, what they're saying is, well, it's 20% of independent spending. Independent spending is spending by people other than the candidates and the political parties and so on, right? But independent spending is only about 12 to 15 percent of the total. So it's 20 percent of 12 percent that gets you right there down to, you know, 6 percent. And in fact, again, when we really add it all up, it's about two and a half percent, three percent. And then the other argument they say is they, they try to play off the name that they've given it, dark money. They say, well, you know, we don't really know how much is spent because it's dark money. But that's not true. We do know. As I point out, we know when you spend the money, the group or the person that spends the money has to report you that they spent the money. You just don't know the individual the that gave them money. Right. And so then, the, then, they'll, then they'll go, well, what I mean is like you don't have to report. Again, we don't have to report the money that's spent this morning on this podcast, right? Um, you know, if, if one of your, you know, one of our listeners here gives money to, to some organization, some local environmental group, and that group spends some money just talking about issues in their communities. We need to clean up the Pottawatomie River or something like that, right? That's technically, you could say that's, quote, dark money. Nobody knows what it's being spent on. But realize that if that's what they mean by dark money, then they're rac- radically expanding the universe of things that have to be disclosed right back into that thing that we spent years and years fighting against. Uh, it wasn't just the NAACP cases. It was the Hollywood 10 cases, you know, the great Hollywood blackball of the McCarthy era. It was cases about involving union organizers. It was in cases involving picketers and so on, where the Supreme Court consistently defended the rights of Americans to engage in group activity without having to report it all to the government and reveal their identities. And, and it's made an exception where you're specifically advocating the election or defeat of a candidate or where you're giving money to a candidate. But what these people do when they say, oh, we don't know how much dark money means, if they're saying that they're either being dishonest or they're coming up with a new definition of what should be disclosed, which is a radical expansion of what the law has ever been in the United States. Are these laws enforced consistently? Um, In the sense that if someone is violating a campaign finance law, regardless of whether you agree with it or don't agree with it, you can almost always count on that them being discovered. Or are you finding it to be the case that uh, they're being enforced unequally as a tool to go after political opponents? Well, I, I, I don't think those are incompatible uh, assumptions. <laughs> uh, one of the things you have to realize is that most campaign finance systems, both federally and in most of the states, are complaint-driven. So, so you get a complaint in, and that's what triggers the investigation. Are they anonymous complaints, or do you have to put your name in? In most it? states and, and at the federal government, you definitely have to put your name on gotcha. it, right? Now, I don't know if that's true in every state, but it's true federally. And, well, from and a due process states. perspective, if it ever went through some sort of process to figure out whether it actually happened, the violation happened or not, you'd almost hope you would know who was filing the complaint, right? Yeah. Well, and but what you can see in the, in the way this happens too is so 
you know, it's very easy for me to file a complaint. I can say, well, I think this guy's probably doing this, that, or the other thing. Then I have a press conference and I announce serious charges have been filed with the Federal Election Commission. And these would be serious charges if they were true. <laughs> and now the respondent, note the government takes over the investigation. So the person who made the complaint has spent, you know, a few hundred bucks to have their lawyer draw up a complaint, okay? The, uh, or maybe they just did it on their own. The respondent now has to spend thousands and thousands of dollars, you know, and go through discovery and production of documents and hire a lawyer to defend them. Meanwhile, the press is going, why are these charges? What are these charges about? You know, so they get bad press days and everything. So, so the law is typically used as a weapon in, in politics. And I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's bad in that way. And I think it actually, you know, these laws are supposed to increase public confidence in, in the elections. I think actually it does, the, does, tends to do the opposite. It tends to make people skeptical. Just so so I'm clear, in some states, if I am a citizen who has maybe kids in school and there's a school bond referendum that's up for a vote in the election to you know spend $10 million to rebuild the school, and I get together with my neighbors and we hold signs at the corner, in some states we would be required to disclose that spending. Right. If, you, if you've if you pooled any money, and in some states it's as little as a buck, and I would say it's like $100 or something. So let's say you got together to make some signs, or, you know, you developed an email list together or anything like that, you know, in a state where it's $1, right? Then, yeah, you would have to register as a political committee, have to appoint a treasurer, have a particular structure, a certain type of bank account, and you'd have to file regular reports with the state government. Even if I'm not giving my neighbor money to go buy the signs, and we're just using markers that I had at home... Um, well, that might pull. depend a little bit on how, how you know how they interpret it, but certainly if you you know each say let's each pitch in ten bucks and we're going to send somebody down to the, the CVS with one hundred twenty dollars to buy you know paper and, and you know, markers the, and yeah you know signposts and all that kind of stuff and, and you're in. Let's say I oppose this bond, and I notice, for example, that this group of neighbors didn't register with the state election committee or whatever it is. I file a complaint. The state could theoretically investigate this group of neighbors for their activity. Right, right, they, yeah, right. That's all it takes is, is filing a complaint, and, and you get the investigation. And a lot of the people, you know, folks want these investigations to be tougher. They, they think there's we're not investigating enough complaints. So let's uh, move on to the controversies of today. We're already at okay. forty-five minutes. If you have okay. ten or fifteen more minutes sure. with me, Donald Trump and Stormy Daniels. Okay. So the allegations are that Michael Cohen, who was Donald Trump's attorney, paid off Stormy Daniels so she didn't go public about this alleged affair she had with Donald Trump. The argument is that that $130,000, whatever it was, was a campaign contribution or an in-kind campaign contribution because it benefited Donald Trump because he wasn't hurt by a national story about his affair, his extramarital affair with Stormy Daniels. Michael Cohen seems to have bought into this argument, or at least that's the suggestion from the way it's played out and his agreeing to cooperate. Is it a campaign finance violation if Donald Trump is spending money to shut someone up? Yeah. Well, you know, I maintain it's not, and this is kind of a technical argument, but we'll take a couple of minutes to go into it. Let's start by recognizing that, again, one of the reasons we limit this is to prevent bribery again, right? Well, I mean, what is the difference between bribery and campaign contributions? People sometimes say campaign contributions are just legalized bribery. You know, okay, that's, that's a bit of rhetoric. 
the reality is that pretty much every society recognizes that there's a difference. I don't think there's any democracy that I know of that prohibits all campaign contributions. And I don't think there's any democracy I know of that makes it legal to accept bribes. So at some level, even though it can be hard to tease out the difference, we do understand that there is a difference, right? One of the key differences, I think, is whether or not you're using that contribution to actually run a campaign, trying to persuade citizens to vote. Or if you're using it to buy yourself, you know, new cars and watches and fur coats for your mistress and things like that. All right. So not everything that you spend for a campaign or that you might spend that might influence a campaign is a campaign expenditure. So, for example, I'm a candidate and I decide, you know, I got this debate next week. I'd look really great if I bought that new, uh, you know, $1,400 suit. Right. Not a campaign expenditure. You got to buy clothing on your own. This is uh, something I'm I'm uh, president. And I say, you know, the people are going to care. I'm going to be up for reelection. And where I take my vacations might influence how people think of me. Right. We had a president very recently who used to take polls on where he should be. The Clintons. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, is that is does the vacation become a campaign expenditure? No, it's not a campaign expenditure. The candidate says, you know, I need to have my teeth whitened. No, not a campaign expenditure. The candidate says, I need a massage before I get back on that tough campaign trail. I can't campaign effectively if I don't get a massage first. Not a campaign expenditure, right? In other words, what we have in the law is something that's called personal use. And under FEC regulations, the Federal Election Commission regulations, any obligation that would have existed, even if you weren't running for office, is personal use. You can't spend your campaign funds on it. We don't want people spending their campaign funds on it, right? We don't want our candidates to use their campaign funds to pay off their mistresses, okay? Or let's take another example. A businessman runs for office, someone like Senator Johnson from Wisconsin or Donald Trump, right? Businessmen with lots of affairs often have lawsuits that are brought against their companies and against themselves for a wide variety of things. Some have merit, some don't. If the businessman goes in and he says to his lawyers, he says, look, I think we've got these five lawsuits against us. I think these are all a bunch of BS, but I'm going to run for office. I don't want them out there. I don't want the press harping on them or saying in some way I'm being unfair to people. So just go settle those lawsuits. Note the only reason he's doing that is to influence the campaign. But it's not a campaign expense. He can't pay those settlements from his campaign funds. It's a private expense for him or maybe for his businesses to pay. So that's the first thing. We need to understand that just because you do something that might influence your campaign doesn't mean it's a campaign expense. And if it were, it would take up everything. You know, when did Hillary Clinton start running for president? Probably sometime around 1975, right? I mean, you can't say everything she does is for the purpose of influencing a presidential campaign. But didn't, I mean, you had that sort of settlement thing that might benefit a campaign in Trump University, right? Uh, I, I don't know if they, they paid settlements, but that's the kind of thing that would not be a, be a campaign, campaign expenditure if he settled cases. If he's like paying that. his lawyers to settle these cases. Right. That, right. But the idea that the argument that this stuff should be reported is the argument that you know we, we need to know this story so we have more information about the candidate. Right. And But you know, here, here's the thing there is that, is that that's not what the campaign finance laws do. In other words, if you want to make that argument, then you could have a law that says candidates must disclose any extramarital affairs they have had or candidates must disclose payments made to settle lawsuits, you know, or or potential lawsuits claims against them. You could have that law, right? You could you could have that and then Trump would clearly would have violated that by not publicly reporting it assuming he would have not reported it. But that's not what the campaign finance law does again. And remember, the law was set up precisely because we didn't want candidates spending their money on these kinds of personal things. So let's imagine that Trump had people people are saying, well, Trump should have paid for this with campaign funds and disclosed it. But if Trump had paid for it with campaign funds, I think the very same people who are accusing him saying he should have paid for it with campaign funds would then have filed a complaint saying 
you've diverted campaign funds to your personal use. This wasn't running for president. You're settling your personal obligations that you incurred years before. And and note the president could have incurred, you know, this, well, let me let me add this. Well, you say in your, your op-ed that you wrote for the Wall Street Journal on this mm-hmm. issue, stormy weather for campaign finance right. laws, that one of the reasons you got campaign finance laws was because Richard Nixon used his campaign funds uh, as hush money, right. or at least that was one of the articles of right. impeachment. Against Nixon. So if you're Donald Trump and you're looking at that, okay, we get campaign finance laws because people are using campaign funds to buy people off to hush them. Uh, So we can't do that. But I can't use my personal funds to pay them off either. You're left in a situation where any money that you're spending. Yeah, uh, that, that can't be right, you know. And, you know, again, what I try to emphasize when I, when I, point out this to people is, is this is not defending or, or criticizing, frankly, Donald Trump. This is just describing what campaign finance law is. Okay. And that I think it would be very dangerous to expand campaign finance law to start including these things because you could have businessmen settling all kinds of disputes and claims, buying all kinds of things for personal use and, and justifying them as somehow vaguely related to a campaign. And oddly enough, for example, in Pennsylvania now at the state level, they, they don't have a personal use law. In fact, their law is anything that might influence a campaign has to be reported. So they're having the exact opposite problem. They have state legislators that buy Super Bowl tickets and they say, well, I'm going with my buddy who might give money to the campaign. So it's a campaign expense and, and they can't do anything about it. Right. Mm. And to me, that's exactly what the laws are intended to prevent because because people give you money and you can use it to go to go to the Super Bowl, that's corruption, right? That's not trying to persuade people to vote for you. That's just taking money from people and they're hoping you're going to do favors for them. So there's another story involving Donald Trump and alleged uh, campaign finance violations. This is the National Enquirer's buy and kill uh, right. practice. The National Enquirer is, of course, a tabloid magazine and uh, the head of the publisher of National Enquirer, I guess, is friends with Donald Trump. And the argument is that National Enquirer was buying stories from people who allegedly had affairs with President Trump, and they were buying them and just killing them. They weren't releasing these stories. And doing so is a sort of campaign contribution because you're preventing a bad story about a candidate from getting out into the public. Is this any different than the Stormy Daniels situation that we were just talking about? It's a tough issue in a way. First, you have to realize that there is what's called in all of these laws a press exemption, that that, that the press can doesn't have to worry about these laws because they spend all kinds of money, right? Endorsing candidates, running editorials, even in slanting their news <laughs> coverage. They coordinate with candidates. That is, they go in and interview the candidate, talk about what the candidate's campaign strategy is. Then they go back and write stories about it. Okay. These laws couldn't operate without a press exemption, or if they didn't have a press exemption, I think everybody would recognize they're unconstitutional. You know, we go back to one of your first questions. What's the nexus between money and speech, right? I mean, I mean, you see it here. The press couldn't report at all if we said, oh, well, they're spending money and they're, and they're reporting on this stuff. So they get an exception. Now, this raises- Even if there's this alleged coordination between a candidate and the newspaper. Right. Now, now here's the thing. Their exception does not apply if they're not operating, so to speak, as press. So for example, the Washington Post can run all the editorials it wants critical of Donald Trump, but it couldn't just go out and buy a bunch of billboards, right, saying vote against Donald Trump. It couldn't just go out and start running ads on television saying, you know, Donald Trump, uh, you know, is going to extinguish the human race by pulling out of the Paris Climate Accords, you know, vote against Donald Trump. It can't do that. It has to be sort of operating as a news agency. Um, 
to get these exemptions. Right, to get these exemptions. But a corporation theoretically could do this, right? As long as it's not coordinated with the candidate, right? Right. Now, now under Citizens United, of course, a corporation now can go out and do that. So the Washington Post can do that now under Citizens United. But if they did that, they would have to report it as an expenditure in the campaign, gotcha. right? Okay. Whereas when they just write, report on the news, when they run their editorials, they don't have to tell us how much money they spent or, you know, that sort of thing, okay? So that there's that distinction. So now the question is, was National Enquirer operating as a press entity, or were they just act, acting sort of like a arm of the campaign? Of the campaign. This is my this is my corporation right. that is also kind of my PR operation because it'll find stories that are going to harm my candidacy yeah. and make sure they don't get out there. Right now, you know, in the United States, my understanding—I didn't attend Columbia Journalism School or anything. But my understanding is that this is not a common practice and would generally be frowned upon. On the other hand, my understanding is that this is quite common in, for example, the United Kingdom. Uh, Downton Abbey fans will know there's a whole plot line of Downton Abbey about the guy doing a catch and kill, buying up a story and squelching it to protect the woman that he's, you know, fallen in love with, right? Um, is, is that a proper press function? You know, I think one can debate that, but here's the problem you have. If you start doing that, you know, I'm not sure the press really wants to go there. If we're going to have a press exemption, which may show how wrongheaded these laws are under the First Amendment, but if we're going to have this press exemption, you probably need to have a press exemption. Consider, for example, let's suppose the Washington Post assigns a bunch of reporters to go tail Donald Trump, right? We're going to find that corruption. They spend $200,000 on this in time and energy, right? Eight months later, the reporters come back to their, their uh, editor, and let's just say they say, we can't find a thing. In fact, we've, as near as we can tell, all of these allegations made against them, there's nothing to them, they're false. The editor says, well, that's not a story. We're not going to run that. Is that a campaign contribution? Right? They're, they're refusing to run something critical of Trump. Right? How much different is that than catch and kill? Now, it is different. You could say their initial intent was to do something, but, but if they only were going to do it one way, is, is that the case? Yeah, I can understand you that know? argument, but I think, again, the distinction would be, is it coordinated with the candidate? Other, if you're exercising yeah. independent editorial judgment, newspapers do that every day, but it's not every day that a newspaper is buddy-buddy with a candidate and working as a PR well, arm for but, the But candidate. what it takes us to is, is what is independent editorial judgment, right? I mean, if the Washington Post editors are like, no, our goal is to get Trump, is that independent editorial judgment any more than the than the editor-in-chief for whatever reason he has of the inquiry? Now, now here's the thing. Is I, but I mean, there are publications out there that yeah. do have an ideological yeah. bend that might want to see, for example, Kamala Harris become president. So they're not going to publish this or that story that might be critical of her, or they might be pursuing a story because they got a tip and they just killed right. it. As, as right. it I mean, I guess the point that I want to make here is, is without really venturing an opinion on the underlying elements of all of this claim, right? Uh, what would strike me is that uh, it's a dangerous area to get into, and it shows the danger of these laws Generally, and if I were, you know, an editor of a paper or, you know, uh, one of the cable networks or something, I'd be very uncomfortable with the idea that a special prosecutor is going to come in and start saying, now, what were you thinking when you made the editorial judgment not to run that story? Or what were you thinking when you decided to make the editorial judgment to assign a bunch of people to pursue a story? You know, that, that if we're going to have a press exemption, you probably need to have a pretty broad press exemption or pretty soon 
you don't have a press exemption. You know, the press once once the press can be second guessed by government investigators all the time, it's pretty tough. So so this would be, a, a, you know, about as good a case as I think you're ever going to get to try to sort of pierce the press exemption, we might say. But I do think it's one that is fraught with risk. And I think it also kind of shows some of the problems here. Why does the press get this exemption, but not the rest of us, right? Why is it that if Jeff Bezos buys the Washington Post, he's free to say and do whatever he wants, but before he buys the Washington Post, he's not. And what about the rest of us who can't afford the Washington Post, or even people who are rich, but not so rich as Jeff Bezos, so they can't mm-hmm. afford the Washington Post? Well, this know? this goes to yeah, the long-running uh, debate between what exactly is the freedom of the press under the First right. Amendment. I mean, are we talking about news institutions? Are we talking about general commentary and writing about yeah and and you know the funny thing is here so for example the new york times gets the press exemption now this is a wealthy outfit you know which by the way for a long time its major stockholder was a foreign national a mexican the carlos slim right people are always worried about foreign interference in our elections okay they could do whatever they wanted if you go out your nonprofit organization and starts a small blog all of a sudden, you spend a couple hundred bucks on that, you can be subject to all kinds of reporting requirements, perhaps restrictions on how you raise your money under mm-hmm. certain laws and so on, right? Although the Why, press would like so, to say that they're not right. reporting. So, so, so the New York Times, which is a big, powerful corporation with lots of influence, can spend what it wants. And the small-time you know, volunteer effort is going to be subject to all these laws. So, Brad, I have to ask you, you sound, I mean, you sound very skeptical a lot of these campaign finance regulations I'm glad you've sensed that. Are are there regulations you like? I mean, what do you think is within the government's scope? What should the government do to maintain the integrity of our elections where money is involved? Mm -hmm. Well, let's say uh, this. First, I mean, my general view is that we should keep pushing in the direction of deregulation. And if we start to see bad consequences, we can stop. Like we Russian should, trolls. Right. We should, re, we like, should What do you remember, think about that? <laughs> well, that, that's a, it's another issue. It's not directly related to campaign finance. We can cover that in a second. But let me, you know, if, if you, um, most of our history, we have not had any restrictions or any meaningful restrictions on campaign finance. And that's how we elected, you know, Truman and, and Roosevelt and or Lincoln. Or wasn't there something, though, guys. with George Washington and the amount of liquor he was Yeah, he spent his- a lot. And there were no limits on it. He spent like, you know, it was, I forget what it was, but it was like, you know, 50 pounds per voter or something like that on buying people liquor in taverns, which was a common way to campaign in those days. Um, so, you know, you need money to campaign. And most of our history, we've, we've not really worried too much about that. We've left it up to the voters to then make decisions on what's right or wrong. And I would like to see us press in that direction. Now, having said that, you know, we've allowed for 40 plus years now um, the disclosure of contributions made directly to candidate campaigns. And again, that's where the greatest possibility is there for corruption. So that's probably one of the more defensible regulations and, and one that we might want to hesitate to take off. You know, when I was on the FEC, one of the areas where I was uh, among the most vigorous members of the commission was on this question of personal use that we talked about a little bit, saying that candidates cannot you know, redirect their campaign contributions to things that are really personal use. And I was sometimes dissenting from my some of my colleagues who normally thought of themselves as the big enforcers and I was the laissez-faire guy. And I was saying, you can't let the candidate spend his money on that because that looks a lot more, you know, it's only very tenuously related to his campaign. It looks a lot more like he's 
taking a bribe, so to speak. So, you know, I do think personal use regulations might make some sense. And of course, that would also require some degree of disclosure. Now, note, by the way, also, we, disclosure doesn't mean it has to be public disclosure. For example, we don't disclose our tax returns publicly. You disclose them to the government and they can monitor, but, but you know, your neighbors can't look up your tax return. Although Congress uh, can compel the disclosure. Congress, tax. Can. <laughs> Congress can, but, but As you know, we might see here in the near future. So those are the kinds of things that I think make the most sense. Um, you know, I do think that there's an argument, although I've argued that we should not limit contributions at all, I do think it is more justifiable to limit contributions than to limit expenditures. At a minimum, I think we should raise most contribution thresholds considerably, particularly many states have very, very low thresholds. You know, we don't, people who give like 50 bucks are not going to, you know, uh, corrupt a candidate. We don't need to know who those people are. We really don't. Um, so, you know, I would, I would raise thresholds across the board, uh, but, but there may be some things that, that have, you know, pretty good case can be made for. And I'm not saying that I would wholeheartedly support them, but, uh, you know, I think we can move in the direction of saying freedom is probably a good thing. And, and let's see, we shouldn't be so so frightened. We have very little to show for campaign finance reform. You know, if you go back and you look at where we were, you know, and who we were electing to office, Eisenhower and Truman and Roosevelt and Coolidge, Then you got Nixon. The you got Nixon, right. Okay, well, you know, so now now people are upset because we got Trump, right? And yeah. in a much more heavily regulated time. You know, people want to say it's the Wild West out there. It's not the Wild West at all. I mean, you got hundreds of thousands of pages, hundreds and thousands of pages, I should say, of regulation of this stuff. We're more heavily regulated in many ways than we've ever been. And this has all been since the 1970s. Uh, and it's a very dangerous power to give to government. I often point out the very first prosecution under the Federal Election Campaign Act was undertaken by the Nixon administration against a number of sort of middle class, upper middle class New York citizens who'd taken out an ad in the New York Times calling for Nixon to be impeached. Not because of Watergate. This was before Watergate. They wanted to be impeached for invading Cambodia. And the Nixon folks said, well... You know, uh, if they're trying to get me impeached, that might persuade some people they should vote against me. Remember, the law was for the purpose of influencing a campaign. And they prosecuted these folks. And uh, the federal court finally said, no, you can't you can't do that. But that's the danger here is that, you know, we're, we turn people's speech into a weapon that can be used by a rogue government. And that's very dangerous. By way of closing up here, I mean, we could go on all day. This is a fascinating topic. What's the biggest challenge you and your colleagues face now? in your efforts to reform some of these laws. And I know campaign finance reform is usually on the side of people who want more laws, but mm-hmm. I mean, in a sense, you're, right. you're trying to reform the laws and yeah. deregulating yeah. them. I think from our perspective, you know, it's sort of odd to say this because, uh, you know, having said, I think money is speech and I don't think we should regulate it. I mean, one of the things is, you know, we get heavily outspent and outgunned, so to speak, in the battle for public opinion. You know, the newspapers are almost entirely in favor of this stuff, in part because they're not subject to it. They're exempt from it. They're perfectly happy to have regulation on everybody else. There isn't an issue with most people. because people are foolish or dumb or anything like that. It's because most people don't have the time nor the incentive nor the desire to spend their life thinking about this, right? I'm the oddball. And to some extent, even your listeners here who've who've waited for this whole podcast are the oddballs. Most people don't really want to focus on this. So to them, they hear, you know, it's campaign, it's money, it's not speech. I don't like the rich guys having more influence. 
and and you you know you have to kind of battle that natural assumption that those prejudices that people bring that again I don't think are irrational I just think when you really examine it they don't hold water and that that makes it a challenge I, all the time. I just kind of had a thought you know we think about New York Times v Sullivan this is a mm-hmm. defamation case involving right. an ad taken out that criticized what was it an Alabama sheriff or? They, it, right they they criticized Alabama sheriffs who were suppressing civil rights protesters yeah and the sheriffs and some other public officials brought a libel ad against the the Times and the people who'd run an ad in the Times. I, I'm thinking you're describing campaign finance regulation. I don't know what the laws in the state were at the time, but presumably if the sheriff and some of these other elected officials were running for office and there was a campaign going on, they could have used the election laws to go after the New York Times if there right. wasn't that's, this that's sort of That's an excellent point. They didn't have those laws at the time, but had they, that would have been an alternative grounds for, for yeah, pursuing uh, the people. Because remember, it wasn't well, I mean, that's just the, the argument you can make to those in yeah. the press who are skeptical of this stuff. I mean, yeah. your ox could have been gored yeah. here. And remember, it wasn't just the Times. I mean, the Times was defending because the other people in the dock were the, it was a paid ad. And so mm-hmm. it was the people who had bought the paid ad that you could have gone after under the campaign finance laws. I said, they can't pay an ad in the New York Times. It doesn't matter whether it's libelous or not. We're just regulating money, right? Yeah. And that would have been the problem. It's all very fascinating stuff uh, here, Brad. Uh, I'm going to encourage our listeners to check out the organization that you founded. What was in 2005? 2005, after I left the FEC. It's called the Institute for Free Speech, and its uh, site is www.ifs.org. I-F-S. And if you you know can't get enough of this stuff, boy, you can get a lot of it there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again for coming on the show today. Thank you. And hopefully you we can do it again sometime in the future. Thank you. That was former Federal Election Commission Chairman Bradley A. Smith. To learn more about Brad and his work, you can check out the organization he founded, the Institute for Free Speech, by visiting ifs.org. And in the show notes, you can also find links to some of Brad's writings, including his 2009 book on campaign finance titled Unfree Speech, The Folly of Campaign Finance Reform. This conversation was hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk, or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at sotospeak at thefire.org, or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Reviews, as always, help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, thanks again for listening.